Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. My name is Jason, your host, and I can be found on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. A Cult is My Passport, the 1967 film, will be one, will be the topic, uh, Jesus Christ, will be the film that we discussed today, t- directed by Takashi Nomura, starring Joe Shishido. Uh, it is one of the films that appeared on the um, weekly uh, recommendations list from John and the crew at the Trilon. Uh, that's been going on during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, might be winding down as we, as they start to reopen things across the state. But um, I'll let Aaron take it from here with a short summary of what the movie's about, uh, how, how we're going to look at it and, uh, and maybe a little bit about the lead actor. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, as Jason said, a cult is my pot passport, uh, 1967. Wait, 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 wait. Did you almost say a cult is my podcast? I, I, I keep thinking of this like as a cult is my passport. Like yesterday I typed into Letterboxd, a cult is my passport, which is a cool name for a movie as well. I would also watch that movie. I was just going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. But no, that's not the name of the movie. No, a, a cult, uh, the gun is my passport. 1967 directed by Takashi Nomura. Um, it was directed by Nomura for the Nakatsu uh, movie studio. Um, a cult is my passport stars. Joe Shishido as hired assassin. Uh, Shuji Kamamura who has been contracted by a Yakuza boss named uh, Senzaki. Uh, the assassination on his target, uh, which is a, another Yakuza member named Shimazu, uh, goes as planned. However, when Kimamura's uh, attempt to leave the country is subverted by Shimazu's uh, remaining men, uh, Kimamura, alongside his sidekick Shun uh, Shiozaki, who is played by Jerry Fujio, uh, they must attempt to either flee or choose to uh, fight for their freedom. Um, they are also joined by Mina, who is played by Chitose uh, Kobayashi. She is a waitress working at a hotel who tries to help them escape. Um, so yeah, this movie is 1967, uh, directed uh, for the Nakatsu Movie Studio, which is Japan's longest running uh, movie studio, kind of it's a movie entertainment studio now. Um, this was at the end of the 60s when they were kind of uh, ending their golden age. And during the 60s, they were developing a long string of like very violent action films that were influenced by uh, a lot of American films, Western, but also like French new wave films uh, that is shown in this movie as well. Um, Shishido uh, in particular was a star who was associated with a lot of uh, Nakatsu's films. Uh, I think most notably the film branded to kill, uh, which is a very influential Japanese film. Um, But Shishido actually died in January of this year. So RIP to him. Um, I don't know. I have a, a few bits of information uh, from his uh, obituary, if you guys want to hear them. 
please. Well, here's, sure. here's a bit of information. Um, um, he yeah. passed while I was visiting in Japan, and apparently his uh, his family found him literally on my birthday. Yep. Hey, Jason. That's my connection. Uh, That's the most where were you on January 21st? 2020 specifically in japan oh hell i forget i remember i think i know i was back in tokyo by that time but i don't think it was the evening that i went to go see um uh toshiro mifune's grave so you're just alone you don't have an alibi is what you're saying yeah carrying a large briefcase just could be seen you know all over guitar case but yeah yeah, guitar case. Um, <laughs> you went with the Desperado. I, I'm into that. No, so uh, Shishido, he was uh, kind of cast to play. Uh, I don't know. He, he was kind of chosen in a kind of a line of, of leading men in Japanese films who were chosen for their kind of uh, remarkable kind of uh, facial features, right? Like he was cast as kind of like a heartthrob uh, film actor. Um, they were trying to cast him in that kind of a you know more rugged role. Um, he was asked to, uh, this is all from the obituary, but there was one time he was asked to change his name because there was a villain in like a Japanese story that was popular at the time named Shishido. And they thought that it would be like bad to have like a, a rugged, attractive leading man with the same name as this villain. That's uh, um, it was like one of the guys that um, Musashi dueled, right? Is it? I, I could not find, I Googled for like a minute or two and couldn't find it. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like, it's like one of the guys that, uh, um, that Miyamoto Musashi like dueled like just a fucking wrecked, just dastardly. Owned. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Musashi cut him up to, apart like everybody, but yeah. Um, he, he did get uh, one thing we were kind of talking about and Jason and I were watching this movie. He got cheek augmentation surgery in 1957, an attempt to seem more kind of fitting for the, the role of a leading man. Um, he, he talked about it. Supposedly he talked with his doctor about it and said like, uh, well, I don't know. Could I get cheek augmentation surgery? And the doctor said, no, that doesn't really make any sense. And then he said, me being the uh, kind of uh, the left turn guy that I was just went, okay, well, let's just, let's just do it then. Uh, and so he got cheek augmentation surgery. Um, he left his contract uh, with Nakatsu in 1971. Uh, he did go on to do more films, but he left uh, right when they were ending their so-called golden age and they were entering uh, their period when they were making pink films, uh, specifically Roman porno films, which were softcore uh, pornography films. So the studio for like 15 plus years pretty much just made a lot of softcore porn uh, and he went and did other uh, kind of like action films in the meantime. Um, but yeah, he died yeah, I, earlier uh, this year. So rest in peace to him. Yeah. RIP. Um, this being the first I think I've ever seen of him. Uh, I find it interesting that he was, he was making films all the way up to like 2012. Uh, he was, he was pretty active later into life. This was not by any stretch one of his final roles. It was, uh, I guess for me, I had this idea, this romantic idea that like it was one of his final roles because it was the one that I saw him in first. Uh, and you know, it's black and white, very dramatic, but, uh, but yeah, he was, I, I, I don't really know what to say about him as a person, so I won't. Um, but we can talk a little bit about what, uh, what we thought of this movie. It's, it's got, like Aaron was saying, a little bit of French new wave vibes, a little bit of, well, a lot of spaghetti Western and obviously, uh, like Dawn of in the sixties was some of the best work from Akira Kurosawa. Um, so like Japanese action and drama cinema were really starting to pick up and gain international acclaim. Uh, and this releases in 67. And, uh, and what, what did we think about it? That was a really good introduction, Jason. Um, 
I I think I liked this a lot, maybe less than I thought I would. Uh, I don't know if if just my sort of blanket opinion is uh, is that interesting, but um, it's like a, it's a, it's interesting, right? Because it's like essentially a Melville movie, like a late Melville, like Les Samurai or uh, Les Circle Rouge, um, with an Ennio Morricone by way of Sergio Leone soundtrack. Like the soundtrack is so clearly, specifically the Dollars trilogy that it's it's like wild. Uh, yeah in a really good way, right? Like those are some of the best soundtracks ever. So like the theme is very good. Yeah. It's throughout, great. throughout like uh, three quarters of this movie, uh, Aaron and I were just like whistling the good, the bad and the ugly theme because it's nice. like very evocative. Um, it's similar, right? In the sense that like it's one late motif that plays, uh, like almost exactly unchanged except with like a little bit of flourishes based on context throughout the yeah. entire movie. Classic, classic, right? Um, I, for those of us for literally me who's never seen a Melville movie, uh, do you mind explaining that comparison? Um, just, uh, uh, I'm, I guess I'm pulling primarily from Les Samurai, uh, which is not like the quintessential Melville movie, but it, it's the quintessential version of the, the sort of like noir, uh, um, hard boiled killer story that I'm, um, evoking, which is just that like, it's, okay. a, it's a very deliberate movie about a, um, a sort of like amoral killer in amoral times uh who is revealed to live by a certain code or principles um when he has run-ins with uh other people he cares about um and there's always sort of like a, a greater evil involved um and uh it's it's sort of about examining this this very dark world that these dark people live in um and operate inside of and it's they're usually characterized as as very slow and deliberate and interested in the methodology and the um uh the interior spaces of of uh these characters but but from a distance right like this there's never like a um uh an interiority in in terms of like what we know about these people it's always just depicted uh on the screen is sort of what i meant uh, yeah, Harry, you, um, you use the word methodology, which is the term that I was also going to bring in. Um, there are moments in occult is, uh, my passport that feel very similar to like watching when we're watching, uh, Elaine Delon in Lay Samurai, um, where the, the methodology of this very silent stoic characters brought forth in very, um, slow uh not slow but uh, like d- deliberately patient maybe um is a, a better way to frame that um and in both uh, the cases of both uh directors the the camera is very um almost infatuated with this with the character's face um Elaine Delone having like a, a pretty famous handsome mug himself and then Joe Shishido um also having a very distinct uh, vibrant presence um, with the way he emotes um, and uh, the his um, artificially augmented cheekbones as well. Um, in this case, bringing yeah, a, a certain ruggedness, ruggedness and, and kind of adds to that stoic mystique. Yeah, definitely. And his eyebrows too, I guess like when I, this being again, my first Joe Shishido film, his eyebrows are incredibly expressive. Uh, they are, they like dominate his face second only to his uh, augmented cheeks it's re- like really impressive which is not something that i expected i guess of a leading man joe shishido in this role i'm not sure that i ex- he's very stoic you know in in appearance uh he's not um revealing a whole lot of emotion externally i guess but 
in so many scenes, like his, his eyebrows are going crazy. The dialogue is all about like, uh, if not spoken by him, then by, um, secondary and tertiary characters about how close the two men are. Uh, he and his partner Shun. um, I'm not exactly sure how to ask. I just want to get your thoughts about the characters, about Kimimura and Shun's relationship. Cause what I read is that they were like partners, but not, uh, super familiar with one another to begin with. And then by the end, they've like sort of created this really sweet sort of sad melancholy friendship that neither of them externally acknowledges, but that everybody else seems to comment on. Did anybody else notice that? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting, right? Shun calls him uh, Anaki, which this localization translates as boss, which is probably um, pretty appropriate given uh, what Anaki means. But like, it could also be translated as like um, senior, essentially, or like uh, like upperclassman if you're an adult. Or especially in Yakuza movies, Anaki is is often um, an honorific that lower level Yakuza will um, call higher level. Uh, Yakuza as a form of respect. I've even seen it localized as Big Bro. Uh, and uh, later on, um, uh, Mina asks uh, Kamimura if they're Kyodai, which is uh, sworn brothers. And I don't remember his answer, but I, I agree with you, Jason. I don't think that that is the nature of their relationship. I don't even think Kamimura is not a Yakuza himself, right? He's like a freelancer, um, but he operates in the same space. Um, but yeah, I think that, that their relationship with one another is, uh, is really interesting in this movie, right? Like Mina commented on, on it at one point, she says, I envy you men the way you can be friends. And that's, after oh, that the, was the quote I was thinking of. Yeah. That's after the first time that, uh, Kamimura tucks Shun into bed, which happens multiple times in this movie. <laughs> tucks him in the second time it happens, I almost expected it to just lean down and plant an itty bitty kiss on <laughs> Shun's forehead. Ouch. Just what a good boy. This is, of course, after he's knocked him out with the eponymous Colt. Uh, so it's a little bit complicated. But uh, um, hey, we express, uh, we express the what is it? Uh, intimate rituals to touch the skin of other men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but like, I think that's important to uh, to the characterization of Kamamura in this movie, right? Because um, Cody, as you said, way better than I did when I was sort of tripping over myself, but like. I, I was trying to square the circle of how these movies can be so much about the interiority of the main character when the interiority is so alien to us and opaque from the camera and from uh, the things we actually hear and experience. And I think it has to do with the way that the camera frames the main characters. They're sort of, you said, um, sort of preoccupation with them. It makes it so that everything in this movie is sort of filtered through our understanding of the main character, where like every scene, even the scenes that the character isn't inhabiting are meant to further characterize how he understands the world and how we understand the world through him. Right. I think that this movie is a pretty good example of that where like even the scenes where it's just the boss getting a massage with the, um, the masseuse in his is giant sort of compound. And then later on he um, propositions her to sleep with him. Even that scene is sort of supposed to make us understand not only the world, but also Kamamura in relation to it. Uh, it's, it's supposed to help us understand his sort of fatalism or sadness, uh, which then makes the fact that he's still so dogged about protecting Shun and later on protecting Mina. It's supposed to characterize him apart from that world, right? It's supposed to be sort of like his code, uh, in opposition to everyone else's. 
Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, I think his code is kind of the important thing, right? Because right. the I, I compared this movie to when when Jason and I were watching it, um, a movie that Cody and Harry you both don't like very much, uh, which is a movie. Hands off the loot, yep, 1954. Um, it is a very similar film. It's also for a little bit of backstory, a movie that the Trilon showed as part of their uh, All Night Up at the Trilon series. Uh, I believe the first one that they did. Um, uh, it was and the that 10th is, anniversary, but the 10th uh, anniversary. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, thank you. Uh, that that is a movie which is kind of um, very focused on the bond between, with kind of scare quotes here, brothers, right, or partners in crime. Uh, kind of this this fraternal bond between two people. Um, this movie is about that, but because it is so influenced by uh, noir and westerns, um, it feels like that relationship is kind of driving towards uh, an even deeper relationship for the main character, which is his relationship with himself and his own understanding of his code and how he lives, right? Um, the climax of this movie is this kind of western-esque showdown in the desert where he essentially tricks his one friend into uh, leaving on a boat to safety while he goes and he kind of cleans up the mess that he has created. Uh, and it's a very Western moment where all of these interpersonal relationships are kind of forcefully shoved to the side so that a person can can do their duty, right? Do their job. Um, and I, I found that kind of interesting in part because this movie is so clearly a mashup of these different influences. Uh, yeah, this might be a little bit early, but that's actually one of the things I don't really like about this movie and kind of don't really like about this format uh, is that Mina and Shun are so extant only to characterize uh, Kamamura and his code that they're not really characters in and of themselves to the point where, in my opinion, um, they undermine Mina's agency quite a lot uh, in order to, to get there. Um, it's just a sensibility thing. Uh, I don't fault the movie necessarily for that but like i understand that that's where the climax goes but like it does sort of undermine the dramatic stakes and characterization of those relationships where it's like to me one of the most exciting parts of this movie was kamamura and shun's relationship but aaron like you characterized very well that relationship only ultimately exists to help us understand kamamura's code and relationship to himself and help him realize his character arc um of sort of making a stand for what he believes in in the end. And like, that was sort of a bummer for me. I don't know if you guys felt similarly. Yeah. I I'll let Aaron go first because that was his point, but I'm going to leave my hand up because I do want to say something about that. Go ahead. Okay, we'll get, we'll get right back to you. Uh, I was just going to say that I, I think I disagree a little bit specifically about Mina. I think that she is given, um, I think a, a pretty good backstory. I mean, she is filling, she's filling kind of a, a role, right. And uh, she is, um, to use another Western comparison, her, her identity as this, uh, this kind of independent woman who lives uh, and kind of works in this hotel, uh, who kind of takes care of the, the many, mostly men who are kind of traveling in and out of the, the business um, and who is looking for a way out, right? Like that is a, a classic Western archetype that she is filling there. And so to that end, I think it's, it's not a bad point that maybe she could have been a little more fleshed out. Um, I think that her backstory is actually weirdly meditated on. There is a solid 20 That's minutes true. in the middle of this movie where you don't see the main characters at all. And it's just her going around the hotel and like taking care of people and uh, expressing her frustrations. Um, I will say that 
I, I do kind of feel bad about Shun. Shun is certainly kind of pushed off to the side, but also uh, he's a sidekick. Like, uh, what the fuck like do you want? A quintessential sidekick, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's like that dude. Uh, Jason, what's up? Oh, I was just going to say, I think I, like, I agree with Harry that it's not a compelling part of the movie that like that Kamimura is n- and his story are not super. They're not what I wanted to know more about, I guess. Uh, for me, that's partially ex- uh, explained by like, again, this is 1967. James Bond fever is taking over the world and Joe Shishido and the director uh, both want to be part of it. Uh, Takashi Nomura, they will both want to be part of it. They want to make a, a, like a great version of the James Bond story, which necessitates a little bit of like that personal journey. It is his movie, right? It's uh, Kamimura's story. Unfortunately, like I said, not the most in- interesting part of the movie. I think that was uh, that could have been explored better in his relationship to Shun in both of their relationship to um, I'm already forgetting the name of the female lead. Yeah. Mean- Mina. Uh, and like, but it's to sort of counter my own point there that like, oh, that's explained by this and this and this, even on those terms, even if I'm meeting the movie on the terms of like 1960s uh, Japanese action cinema, it's not really a strong character arc to begin with because we get such a small amount of time, excuse me, with Kimimura before he's, before his, uh, before his, his contractor uh, turns on him that we don't really see like where he's coming from. The arc isn't obvious by the end of the movie, because once he's wronged, we assume that just because of genre convention, we assume that he's going to do the right thing. We assume that he's going to save his friends. We assume that he's going to kill the bad guys and that the movie will end in a better place than it started. Uh, So for me, like that sort of, if maybe it's a case of like me trying to be smarter than the thing I watched, but I think that sort of deflated a lot of his character arc and made me want to like, I was like, ah, well, Kamimura, yeah, he's going to do his thing. And it's like 90 minutes of him doing his thing, but I want to see Shun like Shun sings a whole ass, like a uh, Spanish influenced ballad in the middle of this song and then just stops. And that's sort of like the moment we get to develop his character. And then it's all now he's got to be sh- saved by Kamimura. Uh, so like when I was looking for something to latch onto, something to find meat in, it was that relationship and, and Kamimura's relationship to others and their relationship to him, how they change him. None of that really transpired because the movie was much more focused on pretending that Kamimura is like a, a character worth watching and paying attention to in himself. Um, you made a lot of interesting points. I think I, I think I disagree in part with a lot of them. Um, I kind of have, sorry, Cody, I'll, I'll get to you in just a second. Um, I'll, uh, I want to respond to something Aaron said first, which is that it's interesting how it characterizes um, Mina and Kamimura in that, like specifically, I actually, I like Mina's backstory a lot, um, except that Kamimura like hijacks it. It like becomes his character arc and his sort of um, motivation. And in an interesting way, that's also uh, what happens with Shun is that he, after after the song, like you said, Jason, all of a sudden uh, it becomes clear that Kamimura is all about protecting Shin. He, Shun, uh, he like almost acts as a cipher that, um, that adopts the motivations of the people around him in an interesting way, like he sponges them up. Um, my issue with Mina is specifically that it was not clear to me why she couldn't leave when she was on the barge and why, like why she couldn't try to pursue a better life on her own with the uh, bargemen, except that she was a woman, which was something that, that had been kind of bothering me um, to, to speak to Jason's point about uh, 
uh, Kamimura's characterization, I don't necessarily totally disagree with you, um, except that I really liked the scene where he talks to Mina about how he has had to, um, he's had to fight his whole life to survive and how that's characterized him. And we see that reflected in the world around him. Um, I thought that that gave him a lot of, uh, a lot of characterization in a short period of time, um, especially in uh, relation to Shun and Mina, and especially in the ways that he, um, he ends up fighting for them and sponging up their motivations. Right. It, it sort of becomes a story about a guy who, uh, sort of rediscovers his reason to fight, uh, in a sense, which again is, is, is pretty typical genre fair. And I think it's totally fair to, um, to feel sort of, uh, disenfranchised from that or numb to that at least. But I guess that's kind of where I got, got it is that he's sort of a guy who like, who makes the determination that Mina and Shun are people worth protecting. And then he uses the, the sort of like, um, dark skills that, his his life of violence have given him to finally sort of do the right thing instead uh, if that makes sense and i i felt that was enough of a character arc to sort of um justify the movie's preoccupation with him because we sort of grow with him in that way but uh that being said then it is a problem for the movie that shun and mina are not that interesting uh because it sort of undermines his relationships with them uh i guess so um it's interesting i i guess uh, yeah, I think what I'm about to say takes bits and pieces from what everybody has said about Mina up to this point. Um, I don't anticipate it being a super new, but by- perfect cipher for our conversations, Cody. <laughs> Hey. That's exactly what you're what you're here for. Look, uh, I am nothing if not a gigantic sandbag. Um, really, the Kamamura of the podcast. All right. Um, anyways, by the by the time we get you know entrenched into maybe roughly the second act, um, there are two inevitabilities that the movie puts forth. One that Kamimura is going to find a way out of this. He's going to run away, uh, not because he's scared, but because he's surviving. Um, so, and that's what he's always done. The other is that uh, the other, I guess, inevitability is that Mina, as much as she wants to get away, um, she always, you know, she leaves these these bargemen high and dry at the dock, and um, like in and because of the I, the the term you use, Jason, genre convention, because of what we've come to expect with this flavor of movie, uh, I find you know I, I find Kamimura's uh, inevitability a little less interesting, especially because of how well Mina is, is set up her feeling um, certain levels of guilt uh, of being part of this, this hideout hotel, um, which the movie leads us to believe, you know, she's had these situations before where, you know, a Kamimura comes along, maybe she becomes attached and then she has to watch these men die. Um, and, you know, and that's not even to speak to the other types of men who, who come through this inn, which seems to be, you know, a, a central place of arrival and departure for truck drivers, Every you know, uh, many of which uh, are groping her, which sucks. But that's a lot for this character to take on. That is like uh, a, a tremendous amount of stress for, for a person to handle. And she was uh, a, a very fascinating character because of that. And the fact that Kamimura steps in to kind of resolve her arc for her. And then once that's done, she's, she's out of the movie. I thought was, was, was disappointing. 
um, to like the the potential that I saw in in her and like what she she could have brought to this story. Yeah, I think I I agree with that very much, right? It, I think Mina's uh, maybe the most interesting character, which is kind of funny because I actually thought that the opening of Act Two, where we're introduced to Mina, is like where the movie lost me uh, to a significant extent, and we can talk about that later, I guess. But um, she embodies most directly the class politic that's happening in this movie uh that's actually really cool and fascinating um and that kamamura himself also occupies i mean even the name of the movie occult is my passport uh is referring to the way that violence makes literal sort of navigation or travel possible um and these are characters trying to get to a new place uh we've we've been referencing this movie a lot but there's like a little bit of a girl walks home alone at night escape from bad city uh, in this movie yes um which is funny uh and uh like so mina's backstory which is uh aaron you had talked about and is one of the best sort of monologues in the movie is that she was born and grew up on a working class barge and people who work on barges and work on the docks are um ostracized and and uh prejudiced against she says just because of where they work or or where they they were born and she also says that the are later in the movie, for instance, like these these bargemen become a faction where like the yakuza can't go to the docks because quote those outcasts who work on the barges stick together. But Mina herself also says that the people who live here can't live anywhere else. So so she's trapped in this sort of like fatalist cycle where she can't she feels she can't escape from the hotel even though she is uh, again uh, groped and leered at at the hotel. Um, and she can't like, she can't have real sort of connections, uh, in this place and she can't escape from it. And so like, there's this trapped feeling that Kamimura himself also sort of embodies with his, uh, his endless career of, um, assassination. There's a really great line early on. It's like the first thing I wrote down where he goes to this empty apartment to plan his hit which is a fantastic scene, by the way. Um, And he gives the key back after he's made his successful hit that starts the whole movie's plot. And uh, the the owner of the apartment says, "Uh, what did you think of the place? And he says, I'd like to live there someday. Right. And like, that was like such a heartbreaking line to me that I almost wish that they would have gone harder with the the class politic, but um, they do right with Mina, which is why it's kind of frustrating that like Mina's plot arc is subsumed by Kamamura's story here where like he makes her this, this sort of, or I guess the story makes her this damsel to rescue and help her escape from bad city when it, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, you, I, I see some hands up. Sorry to reference that. Go ahead guys. Oh no, uh, I wasn't going to negate anything. I, th- I just think like it is true that, and I think it, I don't think it's in con- contradiction to what I was saying about the movie thinking that Kamimura is more interesting than he is. I think it sort Agreed. of is, is complimentary. Sorry. I, uh, sorry, I cut my, cut you off. I said, I just said agreed. I, I sure. think I'm, I'm with you. It's they're like in concert with one another that like, um, the Kamimura has to be the agent of change has to be the catalyst for this character to realize things about herself, to like divulge her story. And again, we're, we're getting into like basic script writing. Right. And, and I hate to call that a, a fault of the film, but like, the way that it pulls those parts together, it doesn't end up in something like super satisfying in terms of telling a story about Kamimura. And unfortunately, because the way that it tells Kamimura or everybody else's story through Kamimura's lens, uh, makes everybody else's stories kind of feel a little bit the same or a little underserved and sometimes flat. Um, 
I was I was going to say I was going to comment. Uh, you said that the um, planning scene before the hit, where he rents the apartment for like an hour, uh, is is a great scene. It absolutely is. I turned to Aaron and I said, like, just give me a whole movie of the planning that goes into. Dude, you got to watch hit. Melville. You got to watch Melville movies. Is that is yeah. that part of his thing? Hundred percent. Yeah, like like I, way more than this movie. Even I love that shit. He like takes his cigarette out and uh, measures the direction of the wind and the like the drop that he's going to have to encounter. And then of course, like Aaron pointed out, he just like. Just ices the guy three times in the chest Man, anyway. That whole like day in the life of a hit where like afterwards they have to figure out what they're doing with the weapon. They have to figure out where they're going to like land. And then they try to like that whole plot arc is so great. Like that's why I was yeah. sort of like let down by the start of act two, because it was just like, if I could just watch this like extremely procedural layout of like, okay, here's the planning. Here's the hit. Here's the extraction. Here's how they got away with it. It's like that. That's so fun to watch. The, like, to the, watch it all, the like, back, the backseat brake pedal. Get the fuck out of here, James Bond. Who the the hell are you? Small potatoes, James Bond. I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, Aaron. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I I like that intro scene as well. I think part of the reason that the... I think this movie begins really well. I think it ends really well. I think the middle is fine, but it it does feel uh, maybe a little detached from the rest of the film. Specifically, the scenes, as much as I hate to say it, specifically the scenes with Mina in the the hotel, they do feel so detached. Yes. I think part of the part of the reason why it's a bit of a letdown is that that intro scene is so um, so strong, and also it's like a, a pretty extended sequence uh, where he goes through planning, you know, this this assassination, and then kind of uh, going through with it, and then and trying to flee the country right after that. It's like it's pretty connected, um, and you do get the impression where you start thinking like, oh man, is the whole movie going to be this kind of shit? Because that would be just great. It would and sick. Then it, It'd be sick, yeah. Yeah, and then it's not, right? Um, which uh, could be a bit of a bummer. Um, I think that the movie turns into something good after that, but I, I had a very similar thought where I just thought, like, why is this, yeah. why is every, why is 50% of the blockbusters that come out not this kind of a thing? Like, give me more assassin, contract killer. Like, it's it's one of the reasons that I like movies where people are just doing their job really fucking well because it's really fascinating to see that operator operating correctly. Yeah, and in, in, in this in this violent context, I think it's entertaining too. Um, I will echo that sentiment and say that I was also for uh, all for a version of this movie that was just Act One extrapolated uh, across the you know the next a hundred whatever minutes uh actually i take that back this movie is very short which is why everybody should watch it um and among other reasons anyways uh using that amazing uh hit sequence as a jumping off point um harry you mentioned how that kind of ties into class which i did not even that didn't pass uh that didn't pass my mind uh, but that's a great point i uh loved that that sequence and that first act and how the movie used I don't know if uh, architecture is uh, a good enough blanket term for it or if it's just uh, modernism uh, as a whole, but the the first you know handful of shots we have are yes, you know, yes. driving through a neighborhood, um, uh, seeing these these big skyscrapery buildings, a lot of I mean a lot of vast open space, and you know we're talking about how this is a mishmash of um, different genres, different directorial styles, um, and how those are kind of intersecting with one another. It, it's not it's you know the big vast landscape of of a, a city 
um, filled with buildings versus, um, you know, a wide open, the wide open terrain of a desert or, or something like that. Um, and, and even down to the, um, you know, the, the auto shop with the second break, that funky safe, um, that requires a couple different keys to open. Um, I, uh, this movie was an interesting exercise in like what a new type of, uh, neo-noir Western, like what that type of genre mashup could be. And it didn't, uh, I guess, I think I was the only one here who had seen this movie, uh, once before. Um, and, uh, this was my second time watching it. Um, it didn't really kick in how this movie was bookended by, uh, a character combating, uh, the, the, the modernistic, uh, world around him. And, and I, I guess going up against, oh, going up against, uh, adversaries that are using this world to their advantage, um, whether they know it or not, um, you know, that, that person leading Kamimura into the hit saying, you know, uh, you, you think you could probably shoot him from here, but like these, uh, this is bulletproof glass. This is bulletproof glass. He's got his bodyguards, uh, around him. There's this, you know, you can see him even being on top of this, this building from so far away is not like enough. You're going to have to figure something out. Um, and that happens, uh, you know, in so much at the end too. Um, with uh, an automobile, different types of uh, semi-automatic weapons that we see them uh, try out. Um, I I don't know how much the movie, I don't know how much it has to say about that, Um, but the the fact that this seems to be sort of a transition between, you know, stoic hero shows up in the Old West, pulls out a gun, and like gets the job done versus a more uh, visibly methodical, yeah, and Kamimura is even you know, talking out loud. You know, you know, oh, if I use this gun, I could kill this many people. Um, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna see him set up some some dynamite. We're gonna walk through that process. Um, I, uh, anyways, I'm I'm just blabbering on. I I thought this was an interesting kind of installment in that progression. Yeah, no, you made a lot of really great points. Uh, I I put my hand down because there were a couple of different things I wanted to respond to there. First of all, like, I'm so glad you shouted out those first couple uh, scenes. Uh, A lot of the shooting in this movie is like really innovative and really cool. Uh, There's one in particular when they're planning the first hit where um, I, is it Shun or is it? No, it's his employer is walking him through. uh, Right. Like somebody who's representing the contractor or something like that. Right. It like it shows them on the ground level looking at uh, some bulletproof glass. And then it like it cuts to a zoomed in um, shot of a like binoculars or something looking at bulletproof glass from a roof. And then it zooms out and then they're on that roof. I like that line or that shot was so sick. Uh, and there are a lot of really great uh, shots like that. Um, you mentioned Cody, but it, it's it's super worth noting that like this movie repeatedly codes wealth as safety right like the the climax is set up beforehand with that um that scene of the bad guys shooting at their automobile uh to prove that it's safe and one of the guys the the main bad guy even says like oh it cost me a fortune but it's going to get the job done or something like that where it's like these are people who are insulated from the consequences of the uh the decisions they make or the chaos that they wrought through their wealth and connections. Um, I think that this movie, and maybe I'm giving it too much credit. I think it ultimately makes kind of an interesting class statement in the sense that, um, uh, Kamimura is sort of a Frankenstein's monster. Uh, 
uh, of this establishment. He he's uh, this contract killer who's been used presumably by all sides, right? Or like, and he's lived in this world for his whole life. He's been fighting ever since he was a kid, and he has to make his way through. Uh, this this movie seems to be making sort of the point that he can actually still self actualize, and that in a weird sense, that the master's tools can dis dismantle the master's house a little bit or that they might need to that we might need sort of uh we might need the workers to use what they uh learned uh which obviously that's a bit of a stretch i'm not calling this like a marxist movie by any means but the idea being that like kamimura can still grow to self-actualization and use the the tools that he's been sort of burdened with to affect change that he wants instead of change that other people uh, force him to enact right like he can use these tools to protect the people he loves and become a full person rather than using them to enact violence on behalf of the powerful um and then uh i think the movie kind of deconstructs itself a little bit or i have a deconstructive reading of that too with mina but uh we, we can get to that later uh no that's that's great uh i like i really like how you tied that back to class the only other thing i was going to add in um, was you put out the line, um, I'd like to live in a place like that one day, uh, which is a great line and a great moment because it's uh, it, it operates on a few different levels, maybe. Like there's that level of presumed sincerity, but it's also like, uh, especially after this payday he's about to get, he could probably live wherever he wanted. And he just kind of put that out in some way as, as like a, a getaway line. Um, so that I, that bit stuck out with me uh, in both my viewings, there was one, uh, pr uh, very early in the movie too, um, which is sort of like a weird compliment to that line where that, that guy who's leading Kamimura through the, 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 the hit, um, he, he just had, you know, has this long drawn out explanation. And at one point he goes, we have to dream big. And I think his, his arms are outstretched and he's just in this, this empty, like modern office building, like meeting room. Uh, standing there by himself, um, which uh, maybe maybe it's me reading too far into it, but I don't know if that offers something else as, as like not a big whole commentary uh, in the way that you were talking about. But the the there's certainly there's that moment of emptiness, and then there are other moments of uh, you know where this is too much space. <laughs> um, this building is 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 too big. Uh, we are so far away, uh, uh, and that's. Uh, like that's that's not enough. You know, we're we're so far away from the person that we're that we're trying to stay away from, to stay in from, and that's that's not enough. Um, uh, again, I don't know if there's anything to that, but um, yeah, I don't know. The first act is really good, you guys. I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that the you know during during that kind of initial, I don't know what do you call it, exp just the during the scene where. Uh, the main character is, you know, being having the the planned hit kind of explained to him. Um, you know, it, it's explained that the the reason that uh, Senzaki wants Shimazu killed is basically over like a business dispute, right? Like the the yakuza here is, you know, they're not a legal one, but they are pretty much a business, right? And it is a essentially a financial reason uh, that Shimazu has kind of been maybe encroaching a bit too much on uh, Senzaki's business, right. yep. and then uh, we got to gotta fucking kill the guy right um i don't think that's like harry said i don't think that's really a marxist critique as much as it is uh you know it does remind me a lot of how uh, a lot of westerns approach 
large corporations uh, kind of encroaching on, um, you know, resources and land rights and things of that nature, right? Like this large corporation coming in and mistreating a community of people uh, and whatnot. It seems more in line with that um, than it does any sort of uh, <laughs> Marxist critique. But yeah, well, I mean, it's there, right? And it's set up before, and that also sets up, sorry, Harry, but that, that sets up the no, turn later on where the Yakuza eventually says, shit, why don't we just kill Kamamura, right? Uh, why don't we just sell uh, basically the ability to kill him to Shimazu's men who are looking for revenge? Right. It's it's uh, it's extremely routine, that first scene. I think that's the big takeaway. And like the the part of the, the sort of... Uh, Marxist scare quotes commentary um, as it pertains to Kimura there is that he's totally disinterested in the justification that he's given. Uh, Like this, this dude is walking through and he's like, listen, like uh, he was expanding too much into our territory. He made some deals that, uh, that he didn't have approval to make. He's sort of a rogue agent. And that's just how these things work. It's like explained extremely routinely. At one point, our common is like cleaning his gun throughout this process and doing this sort of like, um, disaffected protagonist thing where he's not really listening. At one point, he actually cuts the guy off. He's like, uh, that's enough. I don't need to know any more about this. And then, obviously, Aaron, like you said, the turn being that it's going to turn back on Kamimura. Like, once this hit happens, immediately, basically, his employers are like, okay, now we have to deal with this guy, too, because that's how this operates. Kamimura is able to survive for as long as he does because he anticipates that, right? And so, like, that's the world that they're living in. And, like, the idea being that that these powerful people who are insulated, they they have the ability to... Uh, trade people's lives like money, right? And like Kamamura is this disaffected person who realizes that. Um, and ultimately, uh, that's what like helps him survive as long as it does. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, the, the, the motivations of the villains here of the Yakuza trying to kill uh, Kamamura pretty much solely exist, like everything else in this movie, to, uh, further kind of deepen our understanding of the main character, right? Like the main character, uh, you know, he's a, with the caveat that he's a hired contract killer, uh, does not seem like a person who would do that, right? He has uh, one, by the end of the movie, two uh, friends that that he would not do that to. In fact, he is willing to sacrifice himself uh, in order to help them out, uh, I guess, ostensibly, right? Um, whereas the, the Yakuza, it is like cutthroat. It is solely for financial reasons. Um, so th- those, it, it, again, it is like a Western where those greater themes kind of reflect on the sense of duty and, and honor and whatnot uh, of the main character, um, which I don't know. Yeah, again, it's this movie's kind of like a, it's a lot of genre films like this where everybody serves to exist that thematic uh, uh, characterization of the main character for better yeah. or worse. And I don't know, I'm, I was okay with it, but uh, yeah. And again, maybe, maybe you do want the film to go uh, uh, even more in depth and that kind of stuff, but you're not going to get it. Unfortunately. Yeah. I, I think it's just partially the terms that I met this movie on. I, um, you know, having seen most of the Jap- Japanese action cinema that I've seen has been uh, either directly, you know, very, very Western uh, in, in like spaghetti Western style or, you know, influenced by or a direct influence on uh, Westerns um, or more modern, you know, highly stylized action where this is sort of falls in between the two. Right. Harry was talking about some of the former or formal uh, innovations. I really like the way that it's shot in a lot of ways. 
Um, I, I do really like, uh, some of the effects and, uh, it is, it's fun to watch, you know, I just don't know that like that as a story, I met it on the terms that it, that it needed to be met on for me to really enjoy it or like get a whole lot out of it. I was sort of expecting something more of, again, those secondary and tertiary characters and their relationship to the main character. Um, I guess I'm just repeating what I said earlier, but like, I will concede that it was, like I said, fun to watch. I didn't, I didn't not enjoy this movie. I, I think that there's a, there's a problem that you get. Or, well, I don't know about a problem, but there's a thing that happens when you are living in 2020 and you are kind of watching a film from so long ago, uh, clearly inspired by so many different genres where the films that stand out are often the films that are subversions of the genres that they're living in. Right. Like I think a very close comparison from a Western standpoint would be a movie that came out a year after this, which is once upon a time in the West, which seems very similar to this movie. Uh, this movie obviously is, is referencing other, you know, Sergio Leone uh, Western flicks. However um, you know, I, I think there is a value and I think my appreciation of this film uh, is learning to appreciate it just doing its genre uh, trappings very well um, and not needing to have them subverted. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, of course, I, I'm a dude that just likes these genre flicks, though, and I'm often willing to look past uh, maybe a lot of significant faults every once in a while. Yeah, uh, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I think that's, that's right. Um, I think that, in fact, we've talked about this a little bit, um, I think this is a, a classic sort of movie where the themes of the movie itself are only the third or fourth highest priority of the movie. And that's not really a fault. I think some action movies are like that. I mean, you know, like the, the contract killer who has been broken or rendered totally pessimistic by the amoral environment that he is forced to live in because of his economic circumstances, learning to reaffirm himself as a human being and a man and make for the first time, perhaps uh, decisions on his own or decisions for selfless purposes or purposes for other people. Like that is a theme that these genres return to over and over again, right? Where it's like, he may not have, his own sort of like destiny that he wants because he can't see that for himself in a sort of grand romantic sense, but he can at least use the violence that he enacts on others to attain the better future for other people. A cult is my passport, right? Like that sort of, and like for the record, I'm a hundred percent about that theme. Uh, it just so happens that like, it's one we've seen before a bunch. Uh, I think this movie is maybe more interested in its formal experimentation. Uh, the shots, the fact that it's in that gorgeous black and white, um, the way that it's, it's sort of modeling Melville's, uh, technique of showing you the ins and outs so explicitly to, to recharacterize and reframe the story as well as it does. Um, I think it's, it's kind of all of those things more than it is interested in finding new, uh, and subversive, um, ground within the theme framework that it establishes within its genre. Right. Um, I think that that's, it's funny because that's sort of something that we run up against a lot in this podcast, I feel like. Um, and, uh, that's just sort of interesting, I guess. Is is that like it's it's hard to fault the movie for that, but at the same time, uh, being the sort of um, people interested in and having the sensibilities that we do, it's it's understandable to have the problems that we do, right? Um, like for instance, I threatened you all with my stupid um, deconstructive reading, but like 
to take this movie's themes and then do what the movie does to Mina and Shun sort of undermines it, right? Because like, like, sure, uh, uh, Kamamura uses his violence to attain the future that Mina and Shun were unable to attain themselves because he is able to use the master's sort of methodology to affect his own ends for the first time. But in the process, he subsumes their agency, right? <laughs> like Shun doesn't get to make choices for himself. Mina doesn't get to make choices for himself. He, uh, for herself, excuse me. He literally basically abducts both of them and puts them on that boat. So it's like, okay, but like, is he really? dismantling anything or is he just using force to attain his will at the expense of others again right there there's sort of an interesting sense where it's like wait a minute like you what you're doing is not you know it's not what they wanted go ahead right like you you can arguably a better better existence though right sure is is that the argument does it does it align with their personal choices hmm that's a good point I mean, you can you can imagine you can imagine a mo- the not the sequel to this. You can imagine the spiritual successor to this eight years later, in which the the point is brought up that this is not a decision that either of those characters really made themselves, and where that's stated plainly, and where that's a criticism of the main character. Uh, but you're here again, we go. not going to get you it. Know? Not going to get it here, right? Yeah, we we made it, fellas. Fifty three minutes. A cult is my passport. A fascist film. <laughs> a fascist film. Oh, Joe Shishido burning hell. Not recommended. We, we did it, folks. It's a half star on Letterboxd for this one, and that's for that one shot. There's this one shot where uh, it's after they've both been abducted, after um, Joe Shishido, sorry, Kamimura and Shun have been abducted in their own car where they've got the double brake in the back seat. Uh, and, and they like, you see a still shot of the back window from like profile, and then it the car, the, the camera doesn't move, but the car zooms back. And then you see a guy in the front seat with the gun pointed back at them. And it's just like, he's brought into frame. It's, I don't know. That's, that's what I give the half star that this film gets. Uh, the rest of it, the remaining four and a half stars, uh, it's uh, trash them because it's a fascist film. Uh, so many good shots in this movie, man. Uh, I really loved a lot of the shots. I really loved the guy who picks up the, um, the manila envelope of yen and says feels like a hundred because he's so used to handling money that he can just feel how much money is in this, uh, this pamphlet. And then as soon as he picks it up, the camera without breaking the shot pans over to the phone. And then they're like, so is it enough to call? Uh, I really loved that shot. That's sort of a weird shot to mention, but, uh, how, how wild, how wild is it? No, I, I love that shot too. Uh, it feels like a hundred Aaron and I were trying to wonder, we're trying to like, is that a hundred thousand yet? It's gotta be a hundred thousand. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what I, cause that's not an incredibly huge amount. I assume for a crime boss it's in 1967. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, that's like a thousand, I would assume it was localized to be, the equivalent of whatever the U.S. I mean, the equivalent of a hundred dollars. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying that that it would be a hundred thousand in USD, and it is the localization oh, sure. would change that. Right? I don't know. That would be I'm, that would be a million not, yen, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to do the math. Uh, the how wild is that one shot where? Fuck, I think it's in the hotel. And it might be just after Shun gets done with his song or maybe after like he's dr- or uh, Kamimura has drugged him to like protect him or whatever. But the camera goes from like a still shot to somebody literally just grabs it, grabs the camera and runs toward Amina as she's leaving the room, just like shaky cam, like crazy. And just like 
mounts the bed and gets and runs all the way across the room. It's it's so wild. Weird that, that it's the, so the, weird the to see Shakespeare's camera in a black and white 1960s I movie. I know, especially like a black and white Japanese 1960s movie where these things were like experimental at most popular. They were considered most they were considered experimental and this is like a pretty poppy mainstreamy type movie you know with a handsome leading actor uh his sidekick and the and the woman he's trying to save you know right. i don't know it ozu it, ozu actually saw that shot and uh ran to takashi nomura's house and just beat the shit out of him actually no this is uh jason from four weeks in the future where i've actually seen an ozu film ah, great great reference harry i i loved that one that was uh it was a very good reference thank you it was uh, you've heard it here. Four weeks, Jason. You are on the clock. Um, uh, speaking of more shots, I guess uh, I am really not at all happy to say I first heard of this movie through the One Perfect Shot Twitter account. Um, which whatever. Boo. Yeah, I know. Uh, the shot was, was more more per- one perfect snot. Wow. Well, this- Harry, wow. that was really. Uh, mean. no the the one shot they picked and it's it's not bad um it obviously got me like got this movie on my radar it was during the the final the final uh showdown um where uh kamimura shoots one of the the bad guys and he does like a half turn towards the camera and he's giving his expression of like "Uh?" and then he falls down it's like the moment before he falls down and he's like oh dios mio um, oh, that's that's at the landfill when he's like yeah. cornered by five guys. When, is, yeah, when Joe Shishido shoots and murders him, the tool man Taylor. <laughs> As he should. How did they get? How did they get the drop on him? Like he was in an open <laughs> field, yeah. with no cover for a mile, and they got the drop on him. I yeah, it's uh, it's it's that thing in like zombie movies where it's like how how does a zombie sneak up on you and like get within three feet of you and you have no idea. He was distracted by the fly, dude. He was thinking about that Emily Dickinson poem. Oh, you know where they see the fly. He, he was, was distracted, distracted by the one episode fly. of Breaking Bad. Yeah, I was. Damn it, I was going to make that reference, Jason. He was like, damn, <laughs> that bottle episode's the best episode of the entire show, huh? And then he gets shot at. Uh, the one shot I was going to actually submit forth was uh, also during that landfill encounter where um, Kamimura has the foresight to chuck a pistol. Uh, some you know meters away uh use up the ammunition or the the shells i should say in his shotgun uh or uh i don't know i don't know guns he shoots uh and then he's he's sprinting he sprints across this uh you know it's sunrise uh it's black and white he's sprinting across this landfill trying not to get shot uh to pick up the gun that he chucked uh and then ices those two guys the the shot uh, and i think that was also like i mean uh uh, you know, handheld because it was, you know, they're sprinting and it, I don't know. It just, it felt so different from most of the other shots in the movie, save for that shot you mentioned, Jason. Um, um, Cody, sorry, uh, really good thing to rebring bring up for one more piece of evidence as to the sort of um, really interesting wealth class politic here is that uh, when um, Kamimura shoots all of those guys, the scene before we had seen the bad guys figuring out exactly how Kamimura was going to conduct this shootout. They were like, okay, he's probably going to use this shotgun and then he'll have a Beretta uh, and he'll use that. And meanwhile, we're cutting back and forth with uh, Kamimura figuring this out and the bad guys anticipating it, they still send like five armed dudes just in a field at him. Those 
five guys get gunned down by a shotgun and then the Beretta. Then it cuts to one of the bad guys saying, see, I told you it was a shotgun. (laughs) Motherfucker. Like they just sent those dudes like a video game henchman just to die for like fucking data collection. And then they just drive at him anyway. It's like, they, those those people meant nothing to these bad guys. <laughs> like meat, they just before the meat them. grinder. Yeah. Yes, right. you send out the pawns first. Exactly. I uh, I liked I liked talking about this movie. Is everyone uh, everybody got their thoughts out? Has this been the exegesis of of uh, cult is my passport? I'm I'm pretty good. I'm cool. feel, uh, yeah, I'm feeling, feeling pretty good? good. I will repeat one more time. This movie is 84 minutes. It goes down so smooth. Yeah, it's a good movie. Like Clean. you should watch this movie. I think, right? Yeah, I, I think you should watch this. If you are listening for some reason, if you are a, a a a freak and have listened to an hour of this without watching this movie, you should watch this movie. I think. Maybe you just like to hear the sound of our voices. I guess. Hey, uh, hey, Cody, Cody. I guess that brings up a good question. How rewatchable is this movie? This was a first go for everybody here except you. Um, uh, good question. Uh, I, it's depending on what you mean by rewatchable. I think it's either like a very satisfying rewatch or uh, a not satisfying rewatch. Um, satisfying in that I did not dread the thought of revisiting this movie. Um, there are a lot of very, uh, as as we've talked about, um, been talking about very uh, visually vibrant uh, components from the shot composition to um, to Joshito's face um, to the the core, uh, choreography of the uh, the action sequences um, and some things in between too. Um, I don't feel like I gleaned a whole uh, a whole lot of different uh, stuff. With my my second viewing, I don't really feel like I got necessarily anything new out of it. Um, the one thing I did notice was that the first time around, honestly, I could not tell you what the music was like at all. Um, the second time around, I was like, oh, say, uh, this is some Leone-ass uh, music I'm listening to. Um, and I, I'm glad that uh, that some of you guys brought it up. Um and so, so that was something. Um, I don't know. It's 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 uh, digestible enough that I, you know, maybe down the line, um, anybody who's seen it, uh, you fellas included, um, if it is itching at you, um, it might be worth a scratch. Is how I'll. Yeah, if it's if it's been on your watch list, this is a pretty good excuse too, right? Uh, it had it was not on mine, but again, we're we're trying to take some recommendations from the Trilon's programming schedule. Now that they're trying to put the things back together after the coronavirus crisis, well, after currently ongoing and handling it as, as best they can, I guess. For sure. And actually, um, one of my two, uh, I've got a couple of noties here. One of them. No, 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 no. Back, back, back up. You, 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 need, you need your, you were trying to get it without the theme song. Oh, yeah, kind of. Wow. Oh boy. All right. Uh, I guess, I guess now that he's brought it up, it's time for Cody's, Cody's Noties. Beautiful. Uh, majestic. Uh, wow. I'm speechless. Um, hey everyone. Uh, my name is Cody. Uh, <laughs> uh, how to watch Very special episode of Cody's How movie. to watch this movie? Uh, it's been alluded to, um, but just to to address it, um, th- there aren't many places where you can access and watch this movie. 
Um, according to the Just Watch website, the Criterion channel is the one uh, digital platform slash streaming service that uh, is is showing this movie. Um, and I've yet to see I, I've yet to see that would uh, how that would be incorrect. I've, I haven't seen it come up anywhere else doing a little curse research. Um, it is it does have a Criterion release um, kind of. It, uh, it's a, a DVD. Um, they haven't upgraded yet, but it is a DVD release alongside four other, uh, uh, Japanese, uh, noir films released by Nikatsu. Um, and those titles are, I am waiting, rusty knife, uh, take aim at the police van and cruel gun story. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, a, a five pack, I want to say as of the time of this recording, it was, um, on sale for like uh air quotes on sale for fifty five dollars um not a not a bad deal for some like fifties sixties um uh neo noir uh ish works so there's that police van is Seijin Suzuki isn't it um one of the at least one of them is Suzuki um I can't remember offhand but I think you're probably right um and then the only other thing that I wanted to to say uh, tying this back to uh something that uh, at least Harry and I have seen um in 1974 joe shishido appeared in the uh battles without honor and humanity series uh the fifth installment titled final episode um and it was not the final episode if i remember correctly so um defying expectations there (laughs) um but this was during a time when yakuza films were uh fading uh, a bit and shishido more or less stopped appearing in in those types of movies um so it, you could view it kind of as a, a bit of a last hurrah because I was also near the end of his end of his career. Um, but uh, the first Battles Without Honor and Humanity uh, is great. That's the only one I can speak to. Um, so that is something else where uh, if you've heard of that before and it's on your watch list, give that a go. Um, Harry and I saw it. I think on Prime, it's probably available in other better places too. That was one of my recommendations, Cody. Shit, I did it again. Uh, good transition. Well- the yeah, tell, us other. tell us your other tra- uh, uh, oh I was going to say um, you should if you are into this movie or are interested in the like history surrounding it you should watch Melville uh, obviously probably Les Samurai um, Les Circle Rouge is uh, good as well although it's like two and a half hours long um, and uh, you got to watch uh, Sergio Leone westerns too um, Once Upon a Time in the West is a really good one um the dollars trilogy, especially for a few dollars more, which nobody really talks about, but I like that movie a lot. Um, the outlaw Josie Wales, um, that sort of thing. Uh, those all have really good soundtracks that are really reminiscent of this. Uh, yeah, that's what I got. Excellent. Uh, my recommendation is the from Russia with love 007 video game for the GameCube, PlayStation two and Xbox generation (laughs) of consoles. Uh, the way that, um, Joe Shishido moves in this movie, a little bit stiff, a little bit like just very, I don't know, large, like when he dives, when he rolls, it's very large movements. Uh, that reminds me significantly of how you move in that game. You play like a digitally de-aged Sean Connery with present day Sean Connery's voice. I mean, present day 2006 or whenever that game, that game came out with a present day Sean Connery's voice. So you're seeing like, early proper British accent, Sean Connery uh, with ancient, like last crusade, Sean Connery's distinct, like, uh, I I, I don't know if you'd call it a lisp, but 
that that inflection uh and just the way that he moves the way that like the character moves reminded me heavily of of how this movie plays plus you know spies assassinations international intrigue that kind of thing i realize i'm not one to i realize i'm not one to talk here i'm sorry jason but uh it's also worth pointing out that that probably reminded you of that because uh in my experience with you a couple of years now that's also one of your top 10 favorite things to talk about (laughs) in life is that video game from russia Uh, yeah 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 it's it's in the top it's it's probably top 10 15 yeah i i which, could go on which of course reminds me um of one recommendation that i didn't make because i thought it would go unsaid uh but if you are interested in dramas uh romantic dramas perhaps about two men who think of themselves as uh deeper than brothers kyodai sworn in uh to the yakuza together uh i might interest you in a little game called yakuza zero which uh Aaron's Aaron's hand I, shot I up so fast. <laughs> uh, no, that's a recommendation. Uh no, I will uh recommend I've talked about both these movies. Yeah, uh, Harry recommended Sergio Leone films. Uh, I'll, I'll say Once Upon a Time in the West just despite coming a year after this is similar in a lot of ways, uh not very similar in some other ones, but uh worth a watch and worth watching the rest of his uh, filmography as well. Um, that goes without saying, I think. Uh, and then Hands Off the Loot, which uh, I think J- Jason and I are the only people here that like that one. But I, I did like that movie. Um, at the very least, I think it's watch it worth a watch as a uh, slight meditation on on some themes that are present in this film as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll say those two. And uh, yeah. Cool. I, in terms of recommendations, I have nothing original to offer uh, because of the three titles I'm going to put forth have been brought up uh, either during this recording or at many times in the past, um, which is to say that I, either I or all of us have uh, a brand, and that is cool and nice. Um, Lay Samurai, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, um, watch that. Uh, Harry mentioned uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, um, which is incredibly fitting because I was planning on rewatching that uh, tonight. So um, shout out to Harry and also that movie. Um, and I've mentioned Dragon Inn uh, on, on this before. Uh, also came out in 1967. Um, but uh, as far as hotel serving as a crossroads for different stories uh, and arcs and ambitions, uh, as far as that, framing device goes um it's a low-key amazing one uh i imo when done well uh and dragon in does do it super well um and as last i i didn't check prior to starting this sentence um but as far as i know that is still available uh in places uh through places rather including the criterion channel uh what a great recommendation yeah thank you for reminding me cody that i own that blu-ray and i've never watched it Oh, oh yeah. Uh, it is it is currently on the Criterion Collection, though, in case you do not have space for physical media or are pretentious about it like Aaron is. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Uh, this has been our episode about Occult is My Passport, the 1967 film directed by Takashi Nomura. Uh, my name is Jason. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Uh, we'll, they'll be opening uh, for limited uh, seating on a number of films uh, mid-late summer. Um, I don't remember their exact plans, uh, but as I understand, they're trying to be careful with it. Uh, we're going to try and get some interesting programming going around that. Um, uh, we would, we want to, we want to help them out as, as 
much as we can and as, and as early as we can without endangering anybody, including the staff and, and uh, patrons of the Trilon, including ourselves. Uh, so look forward to some of that. Um, uh, and yeah, go to the Trilon's website. We got this from a recommendation from the Trilon, um, from the Trilon staff, including John Moret, film programmer, uh, and and they've got great recommendations every week from from staff and volunteers of the Trilon, uh, just what to watch in the meantime. There are a bunch of ways you can support them financially. They get a cut of certain showings. Just follow them on social media, I guess, is the easiest way I can uh, recommend to, to donate to them and to help them out uh, in a, what's a rough time for most of the film industry, uh, which reminds me, fuck AMC, fuck AMC in and out of the door. Uh, I'm going to finish up there with a uh, quaint. My name is Jason Daphnis. You can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Damn, he just did his boy dirty and then like talked for a long time so that we would forget about it and then said his name again. I didn't hear what he was trash talking me about. What what was I? You were on fucking Letterboxd liking Donald Hughes reviews. I see you, motherfucker. I I like everything Donald Hughes does, actually. All right, I'm Harry. You can see me at Shitaki Harry. Uh, I've been Cody. Uh, fuck AMC. If you see me out in the world, uh, you better be wearing a mask. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Morals or money? Which will it be? <laughs> <laughs>